Hello, and welcome to another White Horse Media presentation. White Horse Media presents Amazing Discoveries with international speaker and best-selling author Steve Wolberg. Our goal is to continue to produce life-changing and biblically-based presentations. We hope you enjoy this series. At the end of this CD, you'll receive more information on this ministry and how you can obtain some additional resources. In today's program, Steve will examine the 144,000. Now, here's Steve. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. Tonight, we are going to unravel the mysteries of the book of Revelation. Our subject is called the 144,000. Revelation talks about 144,000 people from all the tribes of Israel. And it also says that they are virgins and they're not defiled with women. Because of this, some people think that this is talking about 144,000 literal single celibate Jews. Well, is that true or is that fantasy? Let's find out tonight as we study our Bibles. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13. We're going to start with the 16th verse as we try to unravel the mysteries of the biblical subject, the 144,000. Let's begin with prayer as we always do. Let's bow our heads and lift up our hearts to God. Dear Father, it is just great to be here to study the Bible with your children. We pray for the blessing of the Lord. We pray for the Holy Spirit as we study this subject. Please give us spiritual discernment and wisdom to unravel the mysteries of revelation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. Revelation chapter 13. Let's start with the 16th verse. Revelation 13, 16. We talked about this a couple nights ago in the seminar. Verse 16 says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hands or in their foreheads. We talked about this and how the majority of the world, sadly, tragically, at the end of time, is going to receive this mysterious mark in the forehead. Now, if you go down to chapter 14, and if you look at verse 1, if you just go down three verses from the verse that we just read, we're going to read about another group of people who don't get the mark of the beast. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion. And the lamb is referring to Jesus. And then it goes on and says, with him, with Christ on that mountain, there's 144,000. And here's this number having his father's name written in their forehead. So one group in chapter 13, verse 16, gets the mark in the forehead. And then three verses later in chapter 14, verse 1, here's another group that get the name of God in their foreheads. You see that? We have a contrast here. Now, when you study this subject of the name of God, God's name is referring to his character, his love, his truth, his attributes, which are to be written in the minds of his children. And this group here is called the 144,000. Now let's keep reading. In verse 2, John says, I heard a voice. He heard this great voice from heaven after he saw the 144,000 as the voice of many waters and as the voice of great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne of God, before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So here's the 144,000. They're sitting before the throne and they're singing a great song to God. Now, I don't think it's going to be a rock and roll song, do you? I don't think so. This is a holy song to Jesus Christ. Now, if you go down to verse 4, it continues to talk about them. And it says, these are they, this group, which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, ladies, please don't get upset. 
When the Bible says the 144,000 are not defiled with women, there's a lot of symbolism, as I'll prove to you in just a moment, surrounding this group called the 144,000. What does this mean? If you go to chapter 17 and take a look at verse 5, chapter 17, 5 talks about women in the book of Revelation. And it's my conviction that these are the women that the 144,000 are not defiled by. Verse 5 says, Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great. So here's this one woman. She has a name on her forehead, just like those that get the mark, get the mark on their foreheads. And she's called, in verse 5, the mother, the mother of harlots. Now when it says harlots, that little tells us that she's not the only women, woman in the book of Revelation, right? She's a harlot woman, and she has harlot daughters, harlots. And we're going to study all about this in our next meeting, about the mother and about the daughters. And it's my conviction, and when you study this out, it gets clearer and clearer that the 144,000 are not defiled with women, not referring to normal women, but it's talking about these women in the book of Revelation. They're not defiled by these women because they have a pure relationship with Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about that. Now, if you go back to verse 4, verse 4 says that this woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet color. That's why I call her the scarlet harlot. And notice how she's dressed. We're going to actually talk about this later on tonight. But she's really dressed to kill. And it says she's decked with gold and with precious stones and with pearls. Uh, somehow or another, this subject of Christian dress just has a way of jumping out at me in this text. And we're going to be studying more about this later on. It ties in with our subject, what does the Bible say? Now let's go back to chapter 14. Tonight's going to be a big night. Let's go back to chapter 14 and let's look again at verse 4. 14, 4 says, These are they, the 144,000, who are not defiled with women. And it's these women, these false women in Revelation. And then it says they're virgins. Now, this doesn't mean they've never had sex. Paul uses, if you're taking notes, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul uses this word virgin, applying it to all believers. All believers, Paul says, I want to present you all as a pure virgin to Christ. So it's talking about God's will for all of us to be pure, to be undefiled, to be totally committed to Jesus. That's God's will. Now we keep on going. If you look at the rest of verse 4, it talks more about this 144,000. And it says, and this is really the key part of this. It says, these are they which follow. And who do they follow? They follow the lamb. And the lamb is a symbol. It doesn't mean they follow a lamb, you know, a literal lamb that goes ba ba. You know, that's not what they're doing. This word lamb is a symbol of who? It's a symbol of Jesus Christ. You see all the symbolism, the women, the mother, the daughters, lamb, virgins, lots of symbolism here. And it says they follow the lamb whithersoever or wherever he goes. In other words, the 144,000, these people are committed to Jesus Christ. They're Christians. They love the Lord. Wherever Jesus goes, that's where they want to go. If Jesus goes one way, they go that way. If Jesus wants them to go the other way, that's the way they go. Because they're in love with Jesus. That's this group of people. They follow him 100%. And then if you go down to verse 5, it says, in their mouth, the mouth of the 144,000 was found no guile. Even their words are pure. Their words are free from deception, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, this is quite a statement here. The 144,000 are described as being without fault before God's throne, faultless. That's an amazing goal, isn't it? And it's not just talking about how they, they look faultless, but they really are faultless, because even their words are pure. Pure, holy, straightforward, 
words that are not deceptive. Now, obviously, as we think about this, the 144,000 were not born without fault, were they? Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So everybody sinned and the 144,000 were people that were born, you know, and they lived, they lived lives of sin at least at some point in their lives because everybody sinned. And yet they've repented of their sins, they've trusted in Jesus, they've given him their whole lives and they follow him so closely that eventually at the very end they end up without fault. Now as I've read this, I've thought about this and I've thought, you know, this must tell us something about this group of people. That even though they're faulty down here in this world, they must have a very humble attitude of openness to Jesus where they say, Lord, I love you so much, Jesus, and if you see some faults in my life that I don't see, show them to me so I can overcome them by your grace. That's the humble attitude of the 144,000. That's the only way that they could ever end up finally without fault before the throne of God. And we'll talk more about this humility issue as we continue on in our study. Now, if you go back to chapter 14 and look at verse 3, at the end of verse 3, it says, they, this group, the 144,000, were redeemed from where? From the earth, redeemed from the earth. Now that tells us that they were literally upon the earth, but they were redeemed. They're picked up and taken to glory at the coming of the Lord. Now let's go back to chapter seven. Revelation seven is the second chapter that talks about the 144,000. They're in chapter 14 and then also chapter seven. And let's take a closer look. Revelation 7, verses 1 through 4. John wrote these words, After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. Now again, here's symbolism because the earth does not have four corners, obviously. It's talking about all around the world. There's these angels holding back the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now when you study winds in the Bible, winds refer to strife and disaster. And as some people say, if you think life is bad right now, believe me, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ever heard that, that expression? Well, these angels, I believe right now, are holding back the winds of tremendous crisis and problems coming upon this world. And ultimately, that's the time period of the seven last plagues. When the winds are let loose, the plagues fall and everything goes crazy. And then verse two says, I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, hurt not the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God, where? It says, in their foreheads. And then verse four says, I heard the number of them which were sealed, there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So here's the 144,000 again. And what's basically happening is, these are a group of people that have the name of God. And it's also in that verse, we read that they have the seal of God. We have angels holding back the winds. And that's happening right now. God's forces are holding back the winds of disaster and, and all kinds of things. And ultimately, when that time finally comes, those plagues are gonna come down from heaven as we studied about the other night. And the angels are holding the winds until something happens. What needs to happen? It says the angels say, hold, hold, hold the winds until the 144,000 get the seal in their foreheads. And I believe that this final sealing will happen right at the very end of time. When the mark comes on the one side, the majority get the mark, but the 144,000, they get the seal. The seal is opposite the mark. It's the seal of the creator of heaven and earth versus those that get the mark. 
And then when it says that the winds are let loose, this is the time period of the final crisis, the final plagues that fall upon this world. But the 144,000, because they're sealed, they don't get the mark, they are protected during that final time. Like we talked about in our last meeting. God will protect, he will preserve a group of people, and none of those plagues will fall upon them. Remember that? We studied all about this. And those people who are protected and preserved through all this time, they will be alive when Jesus comes, and they will be picked up and redeemed from the earth without ever seeing death. That's the 144,000. They're a group of people that go through the final crisis at the end of this world, who stand for Jesus, stand for the Bible, stand for the truth, get the seal instead of the mark. And they're protected during the plagues and they're alive when Jesus Christ comes. That's the 144,000. Now let's keep going and let's talk about this Israel issue for a minute. In verse four it says, they're from all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now does this mean that they're only literal Jews? Is this what this means? Some people think they're 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams, something like that, I've heard this. But as I mentioned, there's a lot of symbolism surrounding this group. When you just read the Bible, it talks about how they follow the lamb, and that's a symbol of Jesus. How they're not defiled with women, and that's symbolic of the women of Babylon. How they're virgins, which is symbolic of their pure relationship with Christ. And in here it talks about four angels on the four corners of the earth. Is that symbolic or what? Obviously, the earth does not have four corners. And then it talks about an angel coming down and sealing them in their foreheads, which is symbolic of their minds, of their thinking. And so text by text by text, we have symbolism. Now what about Israel? If you go back to Galatians chapter three, let's take a look at this. Galatians three, verse 29. 28 and 29. I've done a lot of study on this subject. In fact, I've written a book and I'll mention this again called Exploding the Israel Deception. This book is available. This book talks all about the issues of literal Israel and spiritual Israel coming out of spiritual Babylon at the end of time. I've got a whole chapter on the 144,000 in this book and this is one of the key texts that I focus on. Galatians chapter three, let's look at verse 28 and 29. The apostle Paul is here writing and this is what Paul says. He says, in the New Testament there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then verse 29, he says, if you be Christ's, in other words, if you belong to Jesus, he, said, he says, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. Now here Paul is writing to Gentiles, but he says, if you as a Gentile, if you belong to Jesus Christ, then God will put you in and he says, you are the seed of Abraham. Did you see that? And a, the seed of Abraham is Israel. And so here in this passage, Paul is saying that those that belong to Jesus Christ, God can plug them in and incorporate them into the tribes of Israel. One of these tribes that's listed here. Now let's keep going. Now let's talk about another issue. Let's go, let's go back to Revelation 7 and let's take a look at this. Some people wonder, well, are the 144,000 gonna only be the only ones that are saved? No, because right after it mentions in chapter seven, verses one through four, if you go down to verse nine, it says, after this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, and they all stood before the throne of God and before the Lamb, and they were clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and they cried with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. So in verses, in verses one through actually, 
through verse 8, it talks about the 144,000, and it mentions they're from all these tribes, which I believe is, is symbolic, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit, and how God can plug us into one of these tribes of spiritual Israel, if we believe in Jesus. And right after that group, it mentions in verses 9 and 10, a great multitude which nobody can count. And so we have the 144,000, and then we have a great multitude. Now, it's my conviction, and I'll just share this with you as the, as the result of my study, that the 144,000, that represents the people that are alive when Jesus comes. And the great multitude, which is a much bigger group, these are the people that are resurrected when Jesus comes. Two great groups go up, right, when Jesus comes down. There's the group that is alive and the group that is raised. And I believe the 144,000 refer to the living and the great multitude refers to those that are resurrected. Now, why does it say 144,000 anyway? Is there any specific significance to that special number? 144,000. Think about it. How many tribes were there in the Old Testament? 12. How many tribes are there in the New Testament? Or how many apostles actually? 12, 12 tribes in the old, 12 apostles in the new, and what's 12 times 12? 144. Bingo. Any significance to that? You know, I think so. I think what God is trying to tell us here by this number, 144,000, God is trying to tell us that this is referring to people that follow the truth in the Old Testament, represented by the 12 tribes. They follow the truth in the New Testament, represented by the 12 apostles. They follow Jesus Christ, the Lamb, 100%. They don't get the mark. They get the seal. They're preserved during the plagues, and they're alive at the coming of the Lord. That's the 144,000 that are described here in this passage. Now, take a look also at chapter 15, Revelation 15, verse 2. This goes right along with this. Revelation chapter 15, verse 2. And this is also talking about, even though it doesn't specifically say it, I think it's talking about the 144,000. Because verse 2 says, I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name. So here's this group of people that don't get the mark. And we read in chapter 14 that that's the 144,000 that follow the group that is mentioned about the mark. Now, if you go down to verse 3, notice what they do. They're singing a song, just like we read in chapter 14, and it says it's the song of Moses, the servant of God, and what testament did Moses live in? Old Testament. And then it says they also sing the song of the Lamb. And what testament did Jesus come in? The New Testament. So this group of people that don't get the mark, that get the seal, that follow Christ and go all the way to the end, this 144,000, they sing the song of Moses. They sing the song of the Lamb. In other words, they're following the truth that's in the Old Testament, 12 tribes. They follow the truth that's in the New Testament, 12 apostles. 12 times 12 is 144. It's a very important number referring to a group of people that follow the truth of both Testaments all the way at the end of time. Now, again, as you go back to chapter 7, it lists these 12 tribes coming from all these different tribes in chapter 7, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. It talks about the 12 tribes. And it's really impossible that they could belong to those literal tribes for one reason, because when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, all the records were destroyed. So it's impossible from a genealogical perspective to trace who belongs to what tribe. And once again, there's all this symbolism in the book of Revelation, and I believe it's the same thing with the 144,000 and all the tribes of Israel, that those that belong to Jesus Christ, Paul says, they are the seed of Abraham. In other words, God can plug us into one of those tribes, and we can be part of the 144,000. 
we can be part of this group. Now, here's another question. When it says 144,000, does that mean that there can't be 144,001? Does that mean that it's an actual, literal, exact number? Or there couldn't be 144,002? It's my opinion, and I can't prove this, but this is just, you know, I'm sharing with you, and you can take it or leave it and do whatever you want with it, but my opinion is that this also is a symbolic number, just like everything else is full of symbolism in reference to this people. I don't believe this is talking about 144,000 to the man, literal Jewish celibate men. I don't think this is what God's trying to say. I think it's talking about 144,000. It's a, it's a symbolic number that describes a final group of people down near the end of time who don't get the mark of the beast, who get the seal of God, who are protected when the winds are let loose, who go through the time of trouble, the final time, who are alive when Jesus comes, who love the Lord all the way, who have been following the truth in the Old Testament, represented by the Song of Moses, who follow the truth in the New Testament, represented by the Song of the Lamb. This is the 144,000. And I believe personally, there can be a million people part of the 144,000. This is God's spiritual Israel at the end of time who follow Jesus all the way and who go through the mark of the beast crisis and who stand for God without compromise at the end of time. That's the 144,000. Now there's something else I've learned about this group and that has to do with the 12 tribes more specifically. As you read in your Bible, or if you read through it in Revelation 7, verses 4 through 8, it talks about the 144,000 coming from all these tribes, 12 tribes. Now, it's, it's significant to discover, amazing discovery, that when you look at the 12 tribes, the original 12 tribes that are listed in the Old Testament that went into the Promised Land, if you look at any map about the Israelites going into the land and settling in these different places, and if you look at those 12 tribes, and then if you look at the list of the 12 tribes in the book of Revelation, in chapter 7, you discover, amazingly, that the list is not the same. There are a number of significant changes. In the Old Testament, the 12 tribes settled in the land. Dan was one of those tribes, and so was Ephraim. But in the book of Revelation, when it lists these 12 tribes, Levi replaces Dan, and Joseph replaces Ephraim. Ephraim and Dan are not listed in the list of the 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, which is a highly symbolic sequence of scriptures, but they're not there. Now, what could possibly be the reason why these two tribes, Dan and Ephraim, are not there? Once again, a lot of symbolism involved and a lot of lessons for us. In the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 17, it talks about Dan. And this is what the Bible says. Dan shall be a serpent, by the way, a viper in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. Now, do you, do you think there's people like this today? Are there people that, you know, go around in different churches and they're like snakes behind you and they're always backbiting people and saying things about them that are not true? Ever heard of people like that? It's my conviction that this group, the Danites, are this is representing to us critical backbiting people that are not going to be part of the 144,000, the people on the far right. Now, then the other group, the Ephraimites, Ephraim, the Bible says in Hosea 4.17, Ephraim is joined to his idols, let him alone. Ephraimites are people on the left. They're people that are joined to their idols. They compromise with the world. They go step by step by step following the world. And eventually God says, let them go. Let them go with the world. So we have people on the right, represented by Dan, the criticizers. We have people on the left, represented by Ephraim, the compromisers, who are holding on to the things of this world. And just about every church has both groups, isn't that right? And what group does God want us to be in? 
neither group. He wants us to be focused on Jesus Christ in the middle. Amen? These are lessons for us in reference to the 144,000. The 144,000 get the seal of God. They're not criticizers. They're not going around finding fault with everybody. But they're also not compromisers. They're standing up for truth, standing up for Jesus, standing up for what the Bible says, no matter what the cost. And they are very careful students of the Bible. This is this final group of people called the 144,000. They are people that instead of being on the right, instead of being on the left, they're not Danites, they're not Ephraimites, but they are following Jesus Christ. I heard a preacher once preach about this, and he said, let's, let's not be among the criticizers, let's not be among the compromisers, but let's be among those that follow Christ. Good counsel, isn't it? And this is part of the whole lesson for us in the book of Revelation. God gave us this prophecy of the, of the 144,000, not so we could debate whether it's literal or symbolic, not so we could, you know, wonder what tribe are you? Are you this tribe or that tribe? And he certainly didn't give it to us to show us that it only refers to 144,000 literal celibate Jewish men. Dear friends, that's not what the prophecy is all about. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And God is teaching us lessons about our Christian experience with the Lord and about how he wants us to stand for truth, to be balanced, to be centered in Christ, not to go to the right, not to go to the left, not to get the mark of the beast, to get the seal of God. And if we do that, he'll preserve us during the plagues and we'll be alive when Jesus comes. Follow the truth in the Old Testament, follow the truth in the New Testament. These are lessons for us to be part of the 144,000. Are you following along? Does that make sense? And maybe you can gather by now that I'd like to be one of the 144,000. I really would. I hope to be alive when Jesus comes. I'd rather not be laid in the grave. I'd rather be one of the ones that's, that's living, you know, when the Lord comes. Praise Jesus. That's what I want. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that God wants us to be looking to Jesus. He needs to be the center of our lives. This is the whole reason why God gave us this prophecy of the 144,000 spiritual Israelites who look at Jesus Christ, who focus on Him, who are centered on Him. And you know, the more we do that, instead of looking at everybody else or looking at the world and following the world, if we focus our minds on Jesus and think about Him and contemplate His love, His goodness, His truth, His purity, then guess what's going to happen to us? His character is going to start being interwoven inside of our foreheads, right? And that's eventually what happens to the 144,000. They have his name written in their foreheads because Jesus is the center of their lives. The whole purpose of this message is to center us in Jesus Christ. That's the reason why God gave us the message and the revelation of the 144,000. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 11. We've got more to do tonight. Let's keep going. Matthew chapter 11. Let's take a look at verse 28 and 29. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29. Now let's talk a little bit more specifically about the word lamb and what the lessons are that we can learn. The scripture says the 144,000 follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now that word lamb is not just a generic word for Jesus, but the word lamb specifically applies to two things. It applies to his humility. He's the humble lamb. A lamb is a humble animal. And it also applies to his sacrifice. The lamb is the lamb that died, right? So humility and sacrifice. 
These are very important messages that are intertwined with the word lamb. And if we're going to follow the lamb wherever he goes, then that would imply that we need to be humble people who are willing to make some sacrifices for Jesus. Amen? Humble people willing to make sacrifices for Christ. This is part of what we're about to take a look at. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29. Jesus said, come to me. Focus on me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Only Jesus can give us rest. And then in verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you. And then he says, and, and what's that next word? And learn, learn of me, Jesus said. In other words, according to Christ, when we become Christians, we enter a school, don't we? Somebody once said to me, they said, Steve, marriage is a school from which you never graduate. And it's the same with the school of Christ. When we become Christians, we enter a school, and that is the school of Jesus. Do we have any graduates here of the school of Christ? Anybody? Anybody graduated yet? I don't think so. We're all still learning, aren't we? We've got lots to learn. Now notice, what does Jesus want us to learn? He says, learn of me, for I am, and then he says, I am meek and I am lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. One of the most important lessons that we can learn in life is the lesson of humility and meekness from Jesus Christ. Are you with me? When you look at the heart of Christ and study the very core of his being, he's a humble, gentle savior. And Jesus wants us to learn these lessons. Now, they're not easy for us to learn because naturally we're not like that. In fact, when you study about the devil, you discover that Satan is the opposite of Jesus. Here's a text from Isaiah 14, verse 13 and 14, talking about Lucifer and, and how he became a devil. He eventually said, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne. I will be like the Most High. Lucifer had eye trouble, didn't he? Not, I'm not talking about cataracts or the need of glasses, but Lucifer had a big head. And that was his problem. He had eye trouble. You ever heard the expression, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Well, Lucifer looked in the mirror, so to speak, and he thought, oh, that's me, I'm Lucifer. I'm just the most beautiful being around. And his head got bigger and bigger and bigger, and that's how he became a devil. And if you think about it, pride was the first sin. That's how we all got into this mess, isn't it? It's through pride. And if God's gonna work with us and transform us to be like Jesus, then God has to deal with this issue inside of our hearts. Lucifer was proud in his heart, and Jesus, Jesus is humble in his heart. Now, if you look at both sides, a humble Jesus and a proud Lucifer, both heart issues, which one are we normally like? Are we normally, naturally humble people like Jesus? Or are we normally, naturally big-headed like the devil? Naturally, we're on the devil's side. That's our nature. That's the way we are as fallen human beings. And God has to work with us to change, change this. Here's a photograph of the front cover of an issue of Moody Magazine. Caught my attention some time ago when I read this. And it just, you know, it illustrates the plight of humanity. Here's a guy with a big head, you know, like a balloon. And it says, self-centered and proud of it. That's just the nature of humanity. Self-centered and proud of it. I heard a story once about two men, Bill and Frank, and they got into a conversation and Bill was doing most of the talking and really all he talked about was himself. And he talked about himself on and on and on and on and on. And finally, he was feeling a little bit guilty. And he said, Frank, he said, we've been talking about me all this time. He said, let's change the subject. He said, let's talk about you. And then he said, what do you think of me? 
He didn't get it, did he? He just didn't get it. Somebody else once said, pride is the only disease that makes everybody else sick except the one who has it. And there's some big lessons for us in this. You know, we are all naturally self-centered, proud, egotistical, because we've received this birthright ultimately from the devil. And God wants to deal with these issues, and this is part of the whole subject of the 144,000. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. Now here is an amazing passage. Paul is here talking about people who become church leaders, and he says that a person shouldn't be a brand new Christian because he might get proud. And verse 6, Paul says he shouldn't be a novice, some translations say a new believer, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Did you see that? So if we get a big head like this guy here in this picture or this illustration, if our heads get big like Lucifer and we get lifted up higher and higher and higher in pride, then what can happen to us? We will eventually fall into the condemnation of the devil. Did you see that? And that's what happened to Satan. He got proud, he became a devil, he fell, and he was condemned by God. Now, the Lord is very concerned about this whole issue of pride and humility. And I've done a lot of study in this area, and I, you know, I'm still praying, Lord, you know, take, take all this out of me too. You know, I, I want more of the humble spirit of Jesus Christ in my heart, just like I hope that, hope that you do too. Now, when you go back to, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're about to discover something in chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, we're about to discover that in the same book that talks about being lifted up with pride, Paul gives some very, very practical counsel from Jesus, which is designed to teach us lessons of humility and to help us to overcome our natural tendency toward being puffed up. Now, let's take a look at some of this. Uh, let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. This is going to be a very practical portion of our study right now. In verse 7, Paul says, Whereunto I am ordained as a preacher, I'm an apostle, I speak the truth that is in Christ. Notice that. Paul is talking about the truth. He says, I'm, I'm not just a normal, you know, average person that has no connection with heaven. Paul says, I'm ordained. He says, I'm called, I'm a preacher, and I'm an apostle, and I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Do you see that? Somebody once said, most people stumble over the truth at least once in their lives. But most of the time, they get up and they go on. Now, the Lord doesn't want us to get up and go on. When we discover truth, he wants us to hold on, amen? Hold on to the truth. So let's look at this. Paul says, I speak the truth that is in Christ. Now remember, Jesus is meek and humble in heart. He's a humble man. And then it says, Paul says, I'm not lying, I'm a teacher, which means he has lessons to teach us. I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity, which means certainty without any question or doubt. So that's the beginning of what we're about to study. A lot of uh, powerful words there. In verse eight, Paul continues on, and here he talks about men. Paul says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And basically what Paul's saying is that when men pray, when they lift up their hands to pray, that their hands should be holy hands, which means they should be totally committed to the Lord. They shouldn't be praying once a week in church and then, you know, during the other days, doing other things with their hands. They should be holy men of God. 
That's God's counsel to men. Amen? Very important. Now, in verse 9 and then in verse 10, what Paul does is he gives some pretty, what shall I say, specific counsel to women. Now, before we read verses 9 and 10, I also believe it applies to men too, not just ladies. But as we are about to read these verses, I, I want to tell you uh, very honestly, please don't let anybody try not to be embarrassed by what we're about to study, okay? As we look at verse 9 and 10, uh, please don't take any of this personal. Most women, in fact, most men in churches these days have never actually read verses 9 and 10. There's not a lot of preachers these days that preach on these, on these texts. And uh, God understands that. God knows that most people have never read this. He understands this. But it's in the Bible, and so we're going to look at it. Paul wrote about it, and I've been preaching about this for over six years, and God has blessed me, and most people can handle what we're about to read. And I, I believe that you can too. So let's take a look. Verse 9 and 10, this is what Paul wrote. And this he calls the truth that is in Christ. He says, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, which means, you know, modesty, the neck shouldn't go too down low, you know, and the slits shouldn't come up too high. Are you with me? <laughs> modesty is important, ladies. Okay, and then it goes on and says, with shamefacedness, which has to do with humility and sobriety, which means sober thinking. And then it says, not with broided hair, which actually talks about jewels in the hair, that's what it means, plated hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly array, but which becometh women, this is becoming of women, professing or claiming to be godly, Paul says, with good works. So here we have some very, very practical counsel, and I believe this counsel is pretty relevant for us today. People are putting rings and jewels and gold in all kinds of places these days, uh, a lot of places that I won't show you on the screen. This may surprise you, what I'm about to tell you. This may shock you. You might need a couple seatbelts for this, but it is true that if you study the history of the Methodists and the history of the Baptists, in fact, 150 years ago, most Baptists, most Methodists, and uh, other mainline Protestant churches, their pastors preached on this, and the, the women and the men didn't wear any jewelry at all in their churches. Now, I know this is a surprising thought, but it's true. And the reason why they didn't wear jewelry was because people used to preach on these texts Right there, 1 Timothy 2.9, that talks about the truth in Jesus that we shouldn't wear gold or pearls or costly array. Here's a, a statement here from a man by the name of John Wesley. John Wesley founded the Methodist Church. And this is what he wrote to the early Methodists. Quote, he said, I exhort you to wear no gold, no pearls or precious stones. I do not advise women to wear rings or earrings or even necklaces, he said. It is true that these things are very little things. Therefore, he says, they are not worth defending. Therefore, give them up, or else a little needle may cause much pain in your flesh. A little self-indulgence may cause much hurt to your soul. Now, these are the words of, of the founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley. You know, most preachers don't preach like this these days. If a preacher preached like this in his church, he probably or he might lose his job. But John Wesley was a spirit-filled man of God, and he said, you know, if I find it in the Bible, he said, I'm going to preach it. And so, I'm a preacher too, and I think there comes a time when a person needs to take a look at this passage. Now, let's look again at verse 9, and let's just take a closer look at it. Paul says he's speaking the truth in Christ, and then notice he says, not with broided hair or gold. Now, notice that word not. That's the same word 
that God used in the Garden of Eden when he told Adam and Eve, he said, you shall not eat of this tree. Now, what did he mean by that? Not eat from that tree. Did he mean just don't take too big a bite? Did he mean just don't eat too much? Is that what he meant? When God, when God said not eat, he meant not at all, right? Don't even touch that tree. And, and the word of God here says not with broided hair or gold or pearls. Now, some people say to me, whew, it doesn't say diamonds, so that's okay. And I, you know, the Lord could have said not with gold or pearls or diamonds, and then someone might go, whew, it doesn't say emeralds. And so the Lord could have said, not with gold or pearls or diamonds or emeralds, but then someone would say, whew, it doesn't say sapphires. So God could have said, not with gold or pearls or diamonds or emeralds or sapphires, but he, does, you know, he doesn't have to list every metal under the sun, right? Every jewel. I think we get the point what he's trying to tell us by looking at this passage. And instead of these things, in verse 9, it says, not with gold or pearls. Verse 10 says, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. In other words, he's drawing a contrast. Not this, but this. This is what the Lord wants to see when he, you know, fully develops his children to be like Jesus Christ. This is his goal. Now, the reason why he says this, the reason why he gives us this lesson, this new lesson, which I know for many of you it's a brand new lesson, and God understands that, this new lesson in humility, the reason why he does this and tells us that really, according to the word, Christians should not wear gold or pearls or jewelry, I believe the reason is because he is concerned about this natural tendency that we all have toward vanity and pride. Here we have, on the one side we have Lucifer, on the other side we have Jesus, and so often we're in the middle and we lean in the wrong direction, don't we? And the Lord knows that. And so he has given us this rather pointed counsel to try to counteract the natural human tendency to pride. And that's why Paul says there in 1 Timothy 3.6, lest being puffed up with pride, we fall into the condemnation of the devil. God is concerned about this. And in this chapter, he's dealing with some very, very deep root issues going closer and closer into our hearts. And sometimes we just go, oh, wow. You know, God, you're getting down deep. But the Lord does go deep. He goes deeper and deeper and deeper until we are like Jesus. That is his goal. Now, Paul is not the only one that wrote this. Let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll show you that Peter said the same thing. If it was just Paul, you might think, well, you know, Paul. But Peter said the same thing. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. Now here, Peter is also talking about the same issue of dress, adornment, character, heart issues, the world's way versus God's way. That's what he's talking about. Verse 3 says, who's adorning, and I apply this both to men and women, let it not, there's that same word, not, be that outward adorning of the plating of the hair and of the wearing of gold or of the putting on of apparel. Peter says, your beauty should not be on this side. And then he says in verse 4, but, here's the contrast, let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit. 
And isn't that what Jesus' heart is like? Jesus said, learn of me, for I am meek and I'm lowly in heart. And this is a lesson that God is trying to teach us in humility in following Jesus more carefully. A meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And I know that people, especially ladies these days, you know, they have a natural desire to be considered valuable and of great price. And this is, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But here in this passage, what God is saying is that that which he values the most, that which he feels is of the greatest price, is not the outward, but the inward, quiet, meek, beautiful adorning of Jesus Christ. And that's what he really wants to see as he looks at his children. And verse 5 says, For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husband. Now, I'm not a, a woman, but if I was a woman, and if I read verse 3 about the outward adorning, and then verse 4 and 5 about the inward adorning, and then I read where it talks about how God wants holy women, you know, if I was a Christian woman, I would say, you know, I, w I would want to be on that side. I would want to be on the side of a holy woman. Now, I'm a man, and so when I'm, as a man, when I read this counsel about lifting up holy hands... You know, it's very important for me to realize that my whole life must be ded dedicated to God and I shouldn't be a hypocrite at all. I should be living a total life for the Lord, as we all should be. So there is counsel here for all of us. God's plan is that when people look at us, whether we're men or whether we're women, when people look at us, that they see the beauty of the character of Jesus Christ shining out through us. That is God's great goal for his children, is to see the meek, quiet, humble character of Christ. Amen? That's what it's all about. And that's why Paul and that's why Peter gives us this counsel. Uh, when I first became a Christian, I used to wear a gold chain, beautiful chain. My father and I had matching chains. And when I became a Christian, I was reading my Bible once and I was thinking about Jesus. And nobody even had to tell me this, but I just thought to myself, I just thought, I wonder if Jesus would wear this chain. And the Spirit just talked to my conscience, and I thought, he probably wouldn't. Jesus was a humble man, he was a pure man, and he probably wouldn't. And so I just decided to myself, well, if Jesus wouldn't do it, then I just reached around the back and I just clicked off my chain. And guess what? It wasn't the end of the world. It wasn't the end of the world. And that was 20 years ago. Haven't worn it since. And I'm, I'm fine. I really am. And the Lord has, you know, he's been doing a lot of things in my life. That's just one thing. He's been doing many things as I've decided to follow him. Now, I want to deal with one more quick issue here. A lot of people ask me a question about this when the Bible says we should not, like it says in verse 3, it says not with gold. And some people say, okay, Steve, I'm following you along here. You know, the Bible says we shouldn't wear gold or pearls or costly array. We should have a humble spirit like Jesus. We should be on this side rather than on that side. And I can see that. And, and then they say, but I've got a question, question mark. They say, if we're not supposed to wear gold, what about gold that happens to be on this finger? that represents my marriage. Uh, somebody just asked me that the other day, and it's a very normal, logical question as you get deeper and study this whole subject. And so what I'm, what I'm gonna do, and I'm not gonna spend much time on this, I'm just gonna try to share with you quickly um, 
some thoughts that I have on this particular subject. I know that it's a rather sensitive one, the issue of wearing a ring. Uh, in the church that I go to, there are some that do choose to wear rings, but there are others that don't. And the reason why they don't is because of, of these scriptures. Now let me just give here something to think about, and like I said, I'm not gonna talk long about this, but you just think about it and pray about it and let the Spirit of God guide your mind. Does that sound good? Uh, I've got a book here called Christian Dress and Adornment written by a man named Samuel Bakayoki. And he studies 1 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 3. He looks at the history of jewelry in the New Testament and jewelry in history and how it has come into the Christian church and all kinds of issues surrounding this subject. And he has a whole section on the wedding ring. And he did some study on this and this is what he found. Here's a quotation here from his book, page 133. And he says here, the question is should Christians wear a marriage ring. And then he says, the two examples we have considered, which he goes into his book, are the Methodists and the Mennonite churches. And he studies the history of the Methodists and the Mennonites. And this is what he said. He said, both of those churches show the same pattern. In the first stage of their development, no jewelry or wedding rings were allowed. In the second stage, a concession was made for wearing the wedding ring. In the final stage, the concession to wear the marital ring became a pretext for wearing all kinds of jewelry, including ornamental rings. And so what he does is he brings out in his book that when you study the Methodists, who used to take a strong stand, and the Mennonites, who used to take a strong stand based upon the Bible, their first stage was they wore no jewelry. And then later on they said, well, we'll make an exception, an exception clause for the marriage ring. And then what happened was that exception clause opened up the door, and so finally as you get down to their third stage, there's no standard at all in the issue of wearing jewelry. One little thing leads to another. You know, it starts, I've mentioned sometimes it starts here, and then it goes to here, and then it's here, and then it's here, and then it's go here, and then it's here, and, and then it's, I won't even go from there. It's other places. And uh, one thing leads to another, doesn't it? That's what happens. That's what happens. Now look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus Christ said these words. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by most words, but by some words, but by almost every word. No, Jesus says, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's what Jesus taught. We should live by every single word that comes from the mouth of God in the Bible. 1 Timothy 2, 7, here's six words. Paul wrote, I speak the truth that is in Christ. Truth, without any question. It's right here. It's in the Bible. If it wasn't in the Bible, believe me, folks, I wouldn't preach it. But if it's in the Word, we should be preaching it. And Paul says, it's the truth. It's the truth. And then in verse 7, or verse 9, he says, not, not, N-O, not with gold or pearls. This is the Word of God. And I don't believe personally we should make exception clauses for the Word. I really believe we should stick with the Bible just as it reads. Now, in saying this, I also want to tell you, I don't believe that we should be going around looking at everybody else and finding fault with what other people are wearing. Because if we do that, we're going to be on the side of Dan, we're going to be the criticizers, right? But on the other hand, we shouldn't be taking these steps and compromising with the world, right? Because if we do that, we could end up on the side of Ephraim, the Ephraimites, and both groups don't get the seal. We want to follow Jesus, and Jesus is meek and humble in heart, and it's very, very important. It's extremely important for all of us to learn. Every one of us has a lot of lessons to learn. I do too. We all do. And it's important for us to learn the lesson of humble, submissive, meek 
obedience to the Word of God in every area. Are you with me? That's what the 144,000 are going to be committed to. Now, let me tell you a quick story, and then we'll look up our last text. I heard a story once that really illustrates my point here. In case I know you're maybe wrestling with this. I heard a story about a wealthy man. And this man had a coach driver, and he would go out, you know, and drive in his coach, and this man's coach driver died. And so he put an ad in the paper for another driver. And somebody knocked on his door and said, I'm here to interview for the job. So this wealthy man got into his coach and his potential driver, the two of them, they went out for a spin. They went up, in, up to a mountain on a country road, and they were going around a turn, and the wealthy man said, I want to see how good of a driver you are. Let's see how close you can get the wheels of this coach to the edge of that cliff. And this man went around real close, and he was a foot away. And the man said, you're a good driver. Next day, someone knocked at his door, and another man interviewing for the job, and they went out for a spin. They went around that same turn, and the man said, let's see how close you can get the wheels to the edge of this cliff. And this man went six inches away from the edge of the cliff, and the wealthy man said, my, you're a good driver. And then the next day, a third man came, and they went on the same cliff, went around the same corner, and this man went three inches away from the edge of the cliff. And the wealthy man said, whew, you're a really good driver. The next day, one more man came for the interview. They went out onto that same mountain, went around that same curve, and the man said, let's see how close you can get the wheels of my coach to the edge of this cliff. And as they went around this turn, this man, guess what? He turned around and hauled over to the left, and he went 10 feet away from the edge of the cliff. And the wealthy man looked at him and he said, why'd you do that? And this is what the man said. He said, if you hire me as, as your driver, he said, my biggest concern is going to be your safety, your safety. And I want to make sure that I stay as far away from the edge of the cliff as I possibly can get. And the man said, you're hired. You're hired. Get my point? My point is, Revelation talks about this woman, and I'm not saying you're this woman, but Revelation talks about this woman decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. And then the Bible also talks about the truth that's in Jesus Christ, that we should not wear gold and pearls. And as I look at this contrast, I've decided I want to stay as far away from that woman as I possibly can get. The 144,000, they want to follow Jesus, the Lamb, wherever he goes. The Lamb has to do with his sacrifice. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ made that sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice that could ever be made in the history of this world, and he did it for you. And what did he wear? A crown of thorns. He's humble, he's meek, and he paid the full price for you. And it's my conviction that if we want to really follow him all the way, we need to learn lessons of humility and we need to make some sacrifices, don't we? Sacrifices if we're going to follow the great sacrifice and any sacrifice that we make ultimately in this life is going to be small. It's going to be small compared to the sacrifice of Jesus. So let's not be on the side of the criticizers going around, you know, criticizing everybody else because they don't get the seal. And let's not be on the side of the compromisers who take all these steps and follow the world because they don't get the seal either. But let's be on the side of Jesus Christ, on the side of the 144,000 who follow, who, who are committed to him all the way, who follow the humble, gentle lamb wherever he goes, and they're the ones that are ready to be taken up at the coming of Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast with Steve Wolberg. We feel privileged to be a part of God's commission to share the gospel message with the world. You too can be a part of our gospel outreach team by supporting broadcasts just like these with your financial gifts. 
We strive to be careful with every dollar that we receive, knowing these donations are sacred gifts to build up God's kingdom of grace and salvation. To find other great resources or to donate online, go to whitehorsemedia.com or you can call us at 1-800-78-BIBLE. That's 1-800-782-4253. You can follow us on Twitter at Whitehorse7 or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Steve Wolberg. That's Steve, W-O-H-L-B-E-R-G. If you prefer to contact us by mail, write to Whitehorse Media, P.O. Box 130, Priest River, Idaho, 83856. Thanks for your support, and may God richly bless your day.